Hello and welcome to People Places Power with me, Nick Cull. And me, Simon Anhold. In this podcast, we'll be talking about international reputation and foreign policy and a few other issues along the way. Today, we're going to talk about Germany, which is a interesting case because in recent years, it's been the number one in a number of important indices about uh, international reputation. And it's also a country that has uh, hosted a number of mega events that has put itself out there uh, providing leadership. So maybe by looking at Germany, we can understand something longer term about how international reputation works right now and what countries can do to make their own bid to be admired around the world. We were talking in the most recent uh, episode, weren't we, about major events. I was, as is my habit, a little bit negative about their ability to improve the images of countries. I think, as I said, it's rather overestimated. But you made the very valid point that if a country is very specific and very precise about what it is exactly about its image it wants to do, not just let's make ourselves famous because we know that doesn't work. But if it does some research and it identifies that there are certain modest components of its image that aren't serving it well, then maybe there's a possibility that you could do something about that. And Germany is actually the best example of that that I can think of. It was when they when they hosted the FIFA Men's World Cup in, in football, soccer, and they, did, uh, they, they played it by the book. They'd been doing a lot of analysis, including my own Nation Brands Index for many years, looking at the image of Germany. And what they discovered was that it was indeed a, a much admired country. In fact, as you know, Nick, in the Nation Brands Index, whenever the USA isn't number one, Germany is most admired country on the planet, which if you think about where it would have been if I'd been doing the Nation Brands Index in 1945, that's a hell of an improvement. Um, and the fact that Japan is also in the top five, and you think where it would have been in 1945, um, some, some uh, pretty remarkable changes there over what I would call a fairly short period. But anyway, Germany had established through um, research over the years what most of us know already, which is very much admired, but on the other hand, not much loved. Respected, but not loved. And enormous amounts of respect for its competence, its capability, its products, its skills, its knowledge, its order. But do we love the Germans? On average, the world doesn't. And it also doesn't think they're very warm and hospitable. And it also doesn't think they're very funny. These are cliches. But like most cliches, there's a grain of truth in them or there once was enough to make it stick around and not go away. So what did Germany decide to do with the World Cup? It didn't do that silly thing where it said, let's make ourselves famous by hosting the World Cup. It said, let's try and show people at least that we're a bit warmer than they imagine. Nothing more elaborate than that. And they did a whole series of things to try to prove that rather than claim it, that being the important distinction. And one of the things they did, which I thought was utterly brilliant, was they arranged for the first time in history for uniformed police officers from the other countries that were participating in the contest to patrol the streets outside the stadiums in Germany while the matches were going on. So if you went to see Germany versus Poland, for example, in Munich or wherever it was, as you came out of the stadium after the game, you'd find uniformed German police officers 
literally arm in arm with uniformed Polish police officers walking down the streets. Apparently, I was told by the Auswärtigesamt, the German foreign ministry, that this was actually quite difficult to do legally because uh, generally speaking, the military and uh, forces of law and order aren't allowed to wear uniforms when they're out of their own country, when they're in somebody else's country. But they managed to do it. Everybody remarked on it. Everybody was astounded by it. Everybody talked about it. There wasn't much social media in these days, but if there had been, they would have done because they'd never seen anything like it before. And what it did was it took something that people already believe about Germany. This is a country that's good at law and order. It's well organized. And it took it on a stage by saying, and it's creative and friendly with it. And that was the millimeters of nudge that you can give to a country's image which might actually be achievable if, you, if you're as smart and as clever and as original and as amusing and as striking and as memorable as that. And in fact, it did work for about six months. I remember at the same time they launched the Germany Land of Ideas campaign with that picture of Claudia Schiffer uh, draped in the German flag saying, are you interested in a serious relationship? Which was a sort of, which I think they, what they were trying to do there was to be funny. And, uh, and you know, it did re- at least raise eyebrows, but, but to claim the basic that... strategy, the basic strategy, Germany land of ideas, what is that? That's bragging. That's saying, look how wonderful we are, which is exactly the wrong thing to do. It makes you dislikable, not likable. And in a way, it's reminding people of something they already know and have thought for a long time. When people have asked me as a historian, what's Germany's secret? I say, well, yeah, sure, they have a secret, but they, they started a long time ago. And, you know, looking back in history, the key moment seems to be, you know, around 1900, when they decided they were fed up with being the make it in bulk and sell it cheap country as the last of the major European powers to industrialize and organized by people like Hermann Mathesius. They get together the the Werkbund, this group of industrialists who decide that the country is going to be all about quality. They're going to design every element. The saying was, we will design everything from the sofa cushion to the city street. Everything will be thought about. And that was a way of of connecting Germany back to an even older idea of the nation uh, as this land of guilds and craftsmen uh, who were working you know with great skill for them for themselves and pride in their work and 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 so Germans were comfortable with that it wasn't like they were giving the country a, a sort of a personality transplant and connecting to the university it was like they were drawing together these things that were happening in Germany that weren't part of that mass production they were they were drawing on the university tradition they were drawing on the tradition of workmanship the image of Germany that they create is sustained it seems to me that it's sustained because they actually deliver on that and you look at the technologies that are developed in Germany in the in the 1910s and 20s and it's really quite remarkable I mean I was amazed you know I just looked up when the first hybrid car was and found that you know the Germans had had that uh, essentially that technology uh, something like 1904 or so just mind uh, blowingly early this goes to something that you've said before. If, if you know, if you want a great reputation now, start a hundred years ago, and you know there's good historical evidence that that's what the Germans did. They started on the 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 contemporary reputation is built on foundations that were laid a hundred years ago and hundreds and hundreds of years ago before 
before that. The strategy exactly mirrored by Japan 100 years later to transition from being the, uh, the, the bulk producer of uh, adequate but cheaply manufactured consumer goods to being a, a premium manufacturer of well or even over-designed goods. When we go to this business of brand impersonation, there, there was a time when Japanese products were disguised as German, where they had fake German yeah. names. Indeed, Chinese products are often disguised as German products today. You look at the, um, the refrigerator brand Haya, it's Chinese brand, never been anywhere near Germany in its life. Uh, it's got a German name. Uh, I think for I think actually for a reason in that case, I think there was a German engineer who, who perhaps settled in China and set up the original factory. But but yes, what, what I long ago, long ago in a paper I called cuckoo brands, they lay their eggs in other in other countries' nests or in other brands' countries in order to steal some of that equity that comes from the country of origin. Germany has been the victim of that. It's also done it itself. And it's very interesting how the, the hierarchy of nations changes slowly over the generations. Yes. You pointed me towards the British high street manufacturer Dixon's having the, 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 the famous fake Japanese name Matsui. But I found that 30 years before, Dixon's had prints, you know, a fake German brand as their, as their identity. So it moves around the map who you're pretending to be. I wrote a book a few years ago called Brand New Justice, which talked a little bit about these dynamics. And I made a prediction that at some point during the early decades of the 21st century, manufacturers around the world, world will be pretending to be Chinese. And I don't think it's far off now. China, of course, has the advantage of having a language that can be recognized by people who don't speak it in the same way that Germany, Italy, and indeed Japan have. You don't have to speak any German or Japan to re Japanese to recognize a German sounding or Japanese sounding name. English is the same. Everybody knows what an English name sounds like, which is why cuckoo brands pretending to be English that aren't English did so well in the in, in the last century. But Chinese is the same. Everybody knows what a Chinese name sounds like. It's a very, very distinctive sounding language. And I think it won't be long before we start seeing technology manufacturers from who knows Germany adopting fake Chinese sounding names in order to sell their products uh, at a higher margin on the marketplace. One of the th uh, things about the German image is that it has been able to cope with the experience of the Second World War. Part of that seems to be that it was possible to think about World War II without losing the essential elements of the pre-war identity of efficiency. And so uh, people could talk about the war, I think quite mistakenly talk about the war and National Socialism as being efficient evil, if efficient evil with well-designed weapons. And then post-war, they could just go to efficient good or if efficient mm. reconstruction and, and the, the, mm. the same marks could be hit. Uh, you know, I'm always amused by that episode of Star Trek where Mr. Spock says, of course, the people on this planet are going to pretend to be Nazis because that was the most efficient government in uh, Earth history that somehow they managed to lift uh, Germany from, from defeat, put it on the verge of world conquest. And you know, a, a completely ridiculous point of view, as far as any historian would say. And yet it's such an important part of popular consciousness 
it's almost like it's a rule in science fiction that you you tread on a butterfly in the Jurassic period and the Nazis win World War II. It's like that's the the default <laughs> historical thing that's just waiting to happen if you change a tiny tiny detail. My point is that it's testament to the strength of that image, that association of Germany with with efficiency. If even their bad points are imagined as as happening efficiently. Yeah, we've we've talked, haven't we, in, in one or other episode about decorative versus useful. I can't remember if we covered that point, but one of the findings from the Nation Brands Index over the years was that at the very, very, very most basic level, most people regard countries as having one of two possible qualities. They're either decorative, like Italy or Brazil, or they're useful, like Germany or Japan. And generally speaking, people put you in one basket or the other. And Germany versus Italy is the, is perhaps the simplest uh, comparison to make. That Italy, even though it's a country which produces astonishing amounts of advanced technology and to a very, very high standard, it's cursed with its image of being merely decorative. And so Italian companies have to sell their technology products at a 20 to 30% discount compared to, say, the German or Japanese or Swiss version or the American version, simply because of the perception that this is a decorative country and you can do food and you can do fashion and you can do holidays and you can do culture and you can do lifestyle, but you can't do technology because you're because you're not useful, which is absurd because everybody knows that Italy is also the country that produces uh, Ferraris and Maseratis. But there you go. It doesn't square with that. Germany, on the other hand, is is cursed in the opposite way. It's one of the most thrilling tourist destinations in Europe. It's got a magnificent history. It's almost unsurpassed in cultural production over the last uh, few centuries. And yet in all of those quote unquote soft factors, it's broadly regarded as being deficient. And Germany is good when it comes to organizing things, but there's no soul there. And it's both of those perceptions are so absolutely wrong um, that it's very, very clear that this driver of the two baskets called decorative and useful must be tremendously powerful. And there are very, very few countries that manage to straddle the two baskets. I'm mixing my metaphors here. Can you straddle the basket? Never mind. Yes. Don't um, try it in a hot air balloon. That makes a lot of sense. Though, you know, if you're driving through Germany, one of the things that's really noticeable is they have brown signs that show you where the factories are. And, you know, in the UK, the brown signs show you where the National Trust houses or the English Heritage Castles are. They clearly have pride in industry, which in Britain, we're, we're still 200 years on from the Industrial Revolution. We're still slightly embarrassed about. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. But Britain is one of the very, very few countries that's considered to be both decorative and useful. And that's one of the secrets of its enduringly positive image. Sweden is another. Uh, Sweden manages somehow to combine the sort of competence of the Nordics with that those lifestyle design qualities that are more associated with Sweden than with the other Nordics. But you know this is this is kind of so powerful a force that you might almost describe it as destiny. You are kind of compelled to be one or the other. I did once suggest that Germany and Italy might consider merging in order to, uh, but then I was reminded that that had been tried once before and it wasn't a very happy experiment. Uh, granddad had to deal with that in 1944. <laughs> you know, that was not a, yeah. on the Gothic yeah. line, what have you. That was not much fun. 
You mentioned that um, Germany is at the moment the default number one in Nation Brands Index. Uh, in the Good Country Index, it's I think number three. You know, preparing for this, I took a look at what its current strengths are, and it's uh, it does a lot for world order. So I guess that means that it's contributing to the United Nations and the European Union. Uh, it, it it's signs very treaties on time. It pays its right. dues. That kind of stuff. Yeah. Uh, healthcare. It's good on healthcare, but it came in. Uh, in the twenties, I think, in science and technology, could you explain how that's how that's possible that Germany could be twenty second in terms of science and and technology? Should it be doing more in science and technology? I, I'm sure that you could produce a very very different result on that, and indeed on every category in the index for every country on the index if only there were more data to choose from. The point, the problem um, about the Good Country Index is that, as you know, it's a composite index. It uses existing data from, from the UN family. And when it comes to finding good data that measures the external, not domestic impacts of, say, technology, you have to use proxies for that because nobody measures the technological contribution of a country on the rest of the world. And so we use proxies. We use things like the number of patents that German uh, inventors or scientists produce in collaboration with scientists or inventors from other right. countries and so on. And so, so it could actually be a victim of its success that it might have an awful lot of patents, but proportionately not as many as would be expected given the wealth of the country. Absolutely. And, but in any case, the patents in, indicator, that's, that's, um, that's simply uh, one data set out of 35. So it shouldn't be possible for a single data set to sway even the sub-ranking very far indeed. But the reality of the matter is, and I've always said this and I say it at any opportunity, the Good Country Index is, um, is an experiment. It doesn't try to be and can't possibly claim to be a complete account of what any country really contributes to the world outside its borders, because all the really interesting stuff is unmeasured and unmeasurable. You'd need a vast research department doing primary research all the time to do it, quote unquote, properly. So it's a stimulus for conversation. Having said all that, it's good data. And the fact that Germany comes in the top 20 is more significant than the fact that it's as low as 20, because this is a ranking of 150, 160 countries. So to look at individual places is always a mistake in a ranking so, so, so broad. If you're in the top 20, then as near as damn it, you might just as well be number five or number three. It, it makes no difference. You are amongst the countries that contribute the most to the world in that particular area. So I always discourage governments from getting too excited about whether they've dropped three places or whether they're four places lower than the country that they desperately want to be. That's not the point. If you're on, in the top third, then broadly speaking, you're contributing more than most. If you're in the middle third, you're average. If you're in the lower third, you need to ask yourself why you're contributing so little. And I don't think Germany has too many questions to answer there. Like, like most rich, developed countries, it doesn't do too well in peace and security. Um, and that's largely because of weapons exports. Also, we're still looking at the tail end of the ISAF presence in Afghanistan and people are killed, and the countries that are involved in the ISAF force share those casualties proportionately according to the number of soldiers they have there. The countries now have mechanisms for improving their image, for maintaining uh, image, for conducting public diplomacy around the world. And 
I'm always rather impressed by the way that the Germans have set things up with the Goethe Institute taking care of culture, being at arm's length, being something that it, that is is free from political interference, having their own German exchange agency to look after educational work. But one of the things that I, I'm really interested in is the fact that some of the provinces have cultural outreach organizations, which are funded provincially, but are working for the benefit of the whole country. So I'm thinking of the IFA out of Stuttgart, which runs the Frankfurt Book Fair, for example. Can you think of other examples where a, a regional organization is pulling for the, the image of the entire country? When I look at other things, what Quebec's doing for, for Canada, what Scotland does for the UK, it's always got a little flavor of separatism. Or it strikes me there's a little bit of a subtext there, but no suggestion that Baden-Württemberg wants to go it alone. Are there other countries where you can see this uh, provincial contribution to the whole? No, I mean, as you know, it's very common within the European Union for subnational regions to do their own promotion. Most of the reason why that's so common and so widespread is because of the easy availability of structural funds from Brussels to do regional promotion. The development of the regions is a core aim. And so the money's there. And if the money's being handed out from Brussels to, to promote these regions, then naturally the regions are going to spend it. And it very often creates a certain amount of uh, disagreement or conflict with the national or federal government because you know, it looks as if they're sending out um, conflicting messages which may not be helping each other. The reality of the matter is, and maybe this is a subject for a, um, for a, a whole episode, the whole idea of quote-unquote branding a region is, I think, a very strange idea um, because it's impossible. Regions don't exist in the common mentality, with very few exceptions. I mean, there are a few ancient subnational regions like California and Tuscany, which are more famous than many countries, almost invariably because they're well known for producing something, you know, champagne or, or, or what have you. But aside from that tiny handful, nobody's ever heard of any subnational regions outside the country itself. And that's largely because they're, they're, they're jurisdictional constructs. They're not really places at all. They were made up at some point in the 20th century, usually, for administrative purposes. And at least once a month, I get a call from some subnational region somewhere, very often in Europe, saying we want to brand ourselves internationally. And they're doing it because they've been given the money to do it, as I said before. But I have to say to them, the chances of you becoming well known internationally are very close to zero. Because who cares? Who cares? I mean, it's of absolute no conceivable relevance. As usual, it's people getting confused about place image and sector specific promotion. What they probably mean is we've got a task to promote foreign direct investment into our region because we've got an industrial cluster here that needs that foreign investment. We need foreign firms. Can we promote for that? Well, that's a different question. You can't raise your profile directly. You can't propagandize your image, but you certainly can do some effective new business generation for, for foreign investment. Absolutely. But I don't call that branding. Um, I call that marketing. And very straightforward it is too. So I think, you know, we, we often come back to this point. I think that this whole, whole, whole field 
which is the source of so much obsessive interest among so many governments, both national and regional, everything would be massively cleared up if only people would learn to distinguish between sector-specific promotion and overall image management, which most of the time doesn't really exist. So, I mean, you know, the example that you gave, it may or may not be common. I really don't know. I don't think I've heard of anything quite like that before. It just struck me as as a different kind of mentality, but perhaps reflecting a kind of a comfort with the entirety of the country. But maybe unification helps and the, the intellectual effort that went into imagining the country together. I guess we're coming on for 30 years that yeah. since reunification. Yes, and... and and, and the fact that Germany is a federation probably plays into that because there's a perhaps a greater preparedness to believe in the, the, the value of decentralized operations of that sort is part of the culture. In any case, in a sense, the question, is it done, is so much less interesting to me than the, than the primary question, which is, does it work? You know, one of the things that, that I find myself repeating over and over and over again is, how do you know if this is working? Are you measuring it? And uh, if only um, administrations that are responsible for this kind of activity, this kind of expenditure, did more measurement, if they just measured their, their blessed image before they start and at regular intervals as they're doing it and then afterwards and use that in a transparent way just to say, OK, we're reaching our targets. The following demographic now thinks better things about us than it did when we started, which is what we were hoping. Therefore, we've succeeded. So please give us more money next year to do more of the same. Do any national or regional governments do that? Not that I'm aware of. If we were giving advice to Germany, what would we tell them to do? To pay rent on their good reputation? I'm thinking here about the problem that Volkswagen had a couple of years ago, where they actually they, they they sort of potentially violated the the national image by cheating on their technology and the emissions um, uh, scam. Yeah. The emissions scandal. Did anything of that show up in your in your in your findings, or is is Germany pretty much watertight? I didn't even look for it. It certainly didn't appear at any of the at the courses level, at the overall ranking or any of the individual rankings. I'm sure that if I'd looked with a with a, a magnifying glass at some of the results for the individual questions about industrial probity or something like that, we might have found a little blip that might have. But, you know, in the end, and we've said this before, haven't we? The real question is not do people like you, but do they want to like you? And people want to like Germany, which means that if Germany screws up, it's very, very likely to be forgiven and forgotten very quickly afterwards. And anyway, the thing we didn't say when we were talking about the Second World War and all the rest of it, part of the reason why Germany is so admired is because humanity likes nothing better than a sinner redeemed. And Germany's story is of the sinner that is still redeeming itself. And therefore, paradoxically, it can screw up more than many other countries and get away with it perhaps more easily, up to a point, up to a point. And, you know, that's something I really admire in Germany is that they have made a tremendous effort to own their own dark places and to be really honest about what happened and to even export some of the things they've developed as memorials around the world. I think it's really a, a, remarkable, a remarkable story. People are not stupid. If they hadn't done that, if they hadn't left that behind, people would know and we would feel very differently about them, I think. Yes, it's the way they've done it is culturally true, otherwise it would be spotted. I mean, one of the things, for example, that they, the Germans could easily have done at this stage if they'd wanted to, 
is to start framing themselves as an international expert in historical reconciliation, rather as South Africa has done. Um, but it wouldn't have worked for Germany. It would have undone a lot of the progress that they've made. It would have shown a distressing lack of humility, where humility is the only viable uh, position. And they clearly understood that, whether they understood it intellectually or just at a deep cultural level, because that's who they are and that's the cultural truth. Who knows? But they, they do often very nearly always get it right. Well, that's all we have time for. Thanks for listening. This has been People, Places, Power. I'm still Nick Cole. And I'm still Simon Anhold. <laughs>